But about two years ago, I wanted to go even bigger, which is sort of large format. And um, it's a substantial jump up. It's not just like moving from 35 mil to medium format. You need new equipment to develop. You need a whole new camera, you need lenses. Um, you, I needed a new scanner. Um, all the signs were pointing to it being a really stupid idea, basically. <laughs> Sounds like it. And a money pit, effectively. Yes. Um, but I sort of determined and I... You ignored the signs. Yeah, I ignored the signs. Yeah, I lost the thread of where we were going with that, but uh, the, oh, the, the West Coast. I'm Emily Kyle, and this is Local. This is a conversation with Launceston-based large-format photographer, Dave Carswell. This episode was recorded in October during Dave's residency at the Cubank Gallery. So you're, you're a Dave, not a David? Yeah. Oh, cool. Although, funnily, when I was really young, um, and this memory is tied into coming here to Queenstown. I went through a period where I really hated everyone calling me Dave. And I told my parents, I was like, everyone must call me David from now on. And, uh, this lasted for a few years, I think maybe until I was going through puberty or something <laughs> that I just didn't care. But, um, funnily since being back here, I remember like saying to my aunties and uncles, around this time in Queenstown, like, call me David, my name's David. That's all, I, that's all I was born as. And then a few times someone has actually said to me here since being here, oh, David, like someone that I've recently been introduced to. And I would always introduce myself as Dave, but they were like, hey, David. And I was like, oh, that's a bit strange because no one really calls me David. <laughs> Maybe it's something about this place that um, is making them do that. <laughs> when you were younger, do you think that you wanted to be called David because you wanted to be taken more seriously? Uh, I've got no idea what my um, motivation was. I think it was like maybe just claiming back something that I thought was mine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like I was like rebelling against people abbreviating my name by taking ownership over it again. It's, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it makes no sense to me now, but... I'm just trying to think of, like, why I did it at the time. Well, I, I remember when I was younger, um, when I was in my first couple of years of high school, I had a teacher that would call me Emma. Oh, yeah. Just because of the way my name is spelled. Yeah. Um, and it infuriated me because that wasn't my name. That's a completely different name. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, I, when I, think that I can comes... understand. Yeah, and I think when it comes from authority figures like that, it's even more jarring, mm. and particularly as a kid when you're, like, trying to establish your yourself as a person. Yeah. It's kind of like you're trying to set the boundaries. Yeah. Maybe that's what it was about. Mm. You know, normally when we start the podcast, we we start at the beginning and you kind of you already have, which is fantastic. <laughs> you started out as this rebellious person who hated <laughs> your name being misrepresented. Mm, your story is quite interesting because you were born here? Um, sort of, yeah. I was actually technically born in Hobart. Um, but You lied to me yesterday. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, 
It sounds better if I tell people I was born here. But mm. I think the truth was the hospital, because I was asking my mum about this recently, I think the hospital here was very small and basic. And so I think if you had the capacity to do so, people in that time went to Hobart uh, for birth. So my parents were living here, but uh, I, my mum went to Hobart to have me and then brought me back here. So I lived here from when I was born. It's probably a more accurate way to <gasps> describe that. And that was in 1983. 1983? Correct. Oh. Oh, wow. I thought you were younger. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought maybe like my grey grey beard or grey hair was well. You never know. Giveaway with men, really. You know um, that when the greys start coming, it could be it could be. I, I don't think that grey is a indication of anything. No, that's, maybe you've that's had true. a very stressful life. Who knows? Yeah, I find it's easier to guess the age of women than men. Oh, I'm terrible. I I don't know anything. I can't. I I I wouldn't be able to do it yeah you can usually i don't know i find the way people dress is sometimes like an indication of how old they are Mm. (laughs) that's true that's true yeah so uh you lived here until you were three yeah i think um we left for in 1986 or 1987 so uh would have been about the time that i was three but so from that perspective i don't really remember living here at that point in time um but certainly from that time there are photos in our family photo albums of my sister and I and my parents at their our first family house which was here on Jacob Street um so I feel like I like I don't actually remember it but my memories from childhood are going through those photo albums and sort of remembering those memories um, for me. And our family moved from here to Papua New Guinea. Um, so it was quite a shift uh, <laughs> culturally. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, from there. And that's sort of where my first memory started to take place there. And what, what was it like? What was it like there as a child? Um, well, at the time, because I was still quite young, like three or four years old, it seemed quite normal to me. We lived in a small mining town um, in the highlands called Wow. Wow. Very wow. Spelt slightly differently. Um, and it was a small town that was predominantly made up of expatriate immigrant people working in the mine. And that's where my sister and I started school. Um, so we made a lot of friends there of other sort of mining families. And it was very hot very remote um my mum is like a very um good cook and she was always complaining about like the lack of you know access to like Mm, good produce good produce but having said that um like the highlands in Papua New Guinea is a bit of a fruit bowl like they do actually grow really amazing fresh fruit and vegetables up there so I remember like we had a banana plantation or banana plants in our backyard so we used to eat a lot of tropical fruit so it's quite an interesting childhood but at the time I didn't consider it different to what other people had experienced because that's sort of all I knew Mm. really at that time and we only lived there for a couple of years before moving back to Australia so it wasn't as if it was a long-standing part of my childhood what being there. prompted the move back to Australia um, well my dad's a geologist 
Ah. Hence the sort of connection. Yeah, mining. So I don't know like what it is about like the mining industry where people move around a lot, but our family moved one, two, three, four, four or five times, like by the time I reached high school. So um, that was the reason for going there and also the reason for moving on to the next place as well. Mm. So were the mines that your father was working in, were they um, in Tasmania or the mainland? Did you move around the mainland? After, After that. So he grew up in Queenstown, my father, and hence his sort of interest in mining and geology and rocks. And then we moved to Papua New Guinea and then after that we moved to um, Cobar, which is a remote town in western New South Wales. Oh, wow, I've never heard of it. It's kind of um, past Dubbo, (laughs) near Broken Hill, I guess, somewhere between Dubbo and Broken Hill. Wow. It's pretty small again. And then um, from there we went to Mount Isa. Oh, yes, okay, that one I know. Yeah, it's funny, like everyone, not many people know of um, Cobar or Queenstown, like from the mainland maybe, but if you mention Mount Isa, that's that's like a big city compared to everywhere else. Yeah. I remember when we arrived there, like we saw traffic lights and my sister and I were just like, whoa, they have traffic <laughs> lights here, this is crazy. And I think they had like a McDonald's or like KFC or maybe it was Pizza Hut. It was some chain and we'd like obviously gone from like Cobar Papua New Guinea, Queenstown. So this place seemed like just an absolute like thriving metropolis really. And in hindsight, I don't know what the population is of Mount Isa, but it's maybe like 15 or 20,000 people. It's, it's, it's still very small yes. if you compare it to major capital cities in Australia. But at the time for us, being young, it was like, wow. Yeah. We've made it. <laughs> I can I can relate to that a little bit because that's my son's reality. Mm. You know, we were in... Mullumbimby, um, and yeah, there were there weren't any in the centre of Mullumbimby. There aren't any traffic lights. Yeah, uh, and the only McDonald's is, is sort of out on the highway, or you need to go to Byron Bay. Okay, um, and it's again, it's the same here. You know, going into Burnie, you know, I we came straight to Queenstown, and we've been here and. And if we ever go into Bernie, it's like, oh, traffic lights. And my son goes wild because, oh, McDonald's. <laughs> it's such a it's such a big deal. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around, you mm. know, that it's, yeah, it's so special. McDonald's is so special. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit sad in some ways, but um, it's interesting that that's like a mark of like a city or an urban environment. Mm. It's a recognised, you know, and I'm sure that that's for them it's like a, marketing plan you know Mm. they boost this big m up in the sky so that everyone can see it and knows that they've arrived (laughs) the beacon yeah yeah (laughs) like seagulls to a to a light (laughs) oh gosh or the a darker analogy you know those those blue lights that draw the moths and flies in and the mosquitoes (laughs) (laughs) that's eating a big mac (laughs) um so you're in Queenstown at the moment. Yep. Uh, working on a photographic series that is based on your memories from when you were young. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I um, like after we left Manizer, we our family moved back to Tasmania, 
just before I sort of reached high school age. And um, I went to high school here and then couldn't wait to leave. Really? Yeah. Like most people, you know, my age, you know, the grass is Mm. always greener on the other side. And so basically as soon as I finished high school, I left. And um, Where did you go? To the mainland? Yeah, to Melbourne. Um, And have lived there effectively on and off since then, so since 2002. And due to COVID have come back to Tasmania and have spent now, you know, in the last six or seven months more time than I've ever spent in the last 20 years or 19 years here. And so um, during that post-COVID period or, you know, during COVID, um, like a lot of these, a lot of my exploration and photography that I was doing at the time was sort of related to places that I remember from growing up. Mm. That wasn't very um, intentional, I would say, to begin with, really just like a thread started to emerge Mm. um, when I was looking at like the work that I was making. And so I started to piece that together and um, consider why I was sort of interested in these ideas. And um, I guess my interest was around why particular places are relevant to my memories and when I'm talking about places, I'm not necessarily specifically referring to like physical place, but like, you know, mental mental mm. place as well. And why certain memories are more memorable than other ones and, you know, whether we assign positive or negative emotions. So I started to think about this and it was sort of evolving in this work. And um, I was interested in coming down here and um, exploring further what I had been shooting so far. Mm. Um, and I'd been interested in coming down and spending a bit more time here because um, in the last couple of years I've come down maybe three times, I think, in the last two years to, to visit. Um, but they've always been really short trips for one or two nights. And mm, uh, It's not enough. It's no, not no. enough to get into the memory abyss. Yeah, and um, even, even I remember... Um, I was saying to someone the other day that when I knew that I had two weeks to come down here, I was like, oh, that's quite a lot of time. I'll definitely be able to fit in everything I want. And I'm now like a week and a half into it. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) just starting to like build up a little bit of a rhythm and um, get on a bit of a roll with a few things and already like (laughs) counting down the days until I have to leave. But I guess the good thing is it's not – like I'm not too far away and um, I've made some good connections here this time and um, from the past as well. So I feel like it's something that like I I can easily return to. It's not, you know, I'm I'm not, if I was coming from the mainland, I would be a bit more stressed out about (laughs) how much, (laughs) how much more time I had here. But yeah, it's a bit of a slow burn. So um, I'm just kind of working through that. In the interest of, you know, memories and fleshing them out, I'm wondering what your, if you know what your first memory was. Um, not particularly, like I have some memories of 
living in Papua New Guinea, like I said before. Mm. I couldn't place them in, um, you know, like a chronological order. Uh, but I remember falling off my bike there and like hurting myself quite badly and hurting my teeth, I think. Oh. And like grazing up my leg. And I remember my mum being really panicked about it because we lived in a very remote place with very like quite limited medical facilities. Mm. And I think she initially thought that I was like going to need to go to hospital or something. And so she was quite worried about it. And she was worried about my teeth as well because I remember she called my auntie who um, worked at an orthodontist and was like <laughs> asking her about how how bad it was. Um, and I remember falling in a river there when I was going for a walk. It was like a muddy kind of felt like a mine river. It felt mm. like maybe maybe the Queen River 20 or 30 years ago. I remember being sort of like dragging myself out of it just covered in like mud and silt and having to walk home and clean clean myself. And another memory of an earthquake that happened while we were there as well in the middle of the night. How um, bad was it? Just a rumbling or? Yeah, like the house shook. Oof. Like a few things fell off the shelf. I remember I woke up. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think aside from that it was particularly bad. Like I don't recall anything the next day that was like, you know, nothing in town had fallen over or no one had died. But I remember sort of the waking up and like everyone was a bit kind of on edge about how long it might go for or mm. whether it might get worse. Um, so there's some of the um, particular memories from being there. I think it's interesting, you know, earlier you were talking about um, assigning emotions to different memories and I, I think that it is interesting that the strongest memories that we seem to have <clears throat> um, uh, come from feeling a very intense emotion yeah, in yeah. the memory and that, uh, I think pain or fear uh, is a huge catalyst for that to be sticking in our brain. I guess maybe it's a learning experience. The brain wants to possibly remember that experience so that we don't repeat it or because it's it's hard sometimes to try to recall the happy yeah, memories, yeah. <laughs> those memories that you're feeling really exuberant and fulfilled and joyful. Yeah. They seem much harder to access yeah. than the painful, <laughs> painful ones. Maybe because the happy memories are more common so they're less unique if that makes sense. Mm. Like uh, those stories that I mentioned, like the earthquake falling off my bike, falling in the river, <clears throat> like you're saying, that, and they're not traumatic but they're something sort of negative that's happened and mm. probably memorable for that particular reason. But like I have some broad memories of like happy things that my sister and I did but I think when you tie all those things together it's like a bit of a blur of... You know, we were constantly happy and running around. It wasn't any different to anything else, whereas those other things that happened were like, oh, I really hurt myself or this is mm. scary or, yeah. It's mm. an interesting observation because, like, when traumatic experiences like that happen again, you sort of drawn back to those first, first yes. times that it happened. Yes. Well, I guess that's, you know, how um, 
in being triggered works. Mm. Yeah. Um, like you don't, if you're happy about something, like say if you receive some good news, you don't feel great and then go, oh, I, I remember when I also felt great because this <laughs> happened to you. Like it's. I have found something and I, I don't know if you've found this. Uh, there's a particular kind of weather. It's, um, for me, uh, it's summery and the sun is out, mm. but it still has that beautiful, fresh spring breeze. Yeah. And that triggers happiness for me. Okay. Because uh, that's what the weather was like when I was with my first boyfriend ah, okay. in high school. There you go. And it was very free and fun and yeah. lovely. Yeah. And so it, whenever that day comes, I just, oh, this is a good day. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if it's, there's a funny association thing happening, maybe with pain it's, oh, remember, I, I'm in pain now, remember that time we were in, in pain before? Yeah. And maybe with happy thoughts, with happy experiences, it's the past experience triggers the future experience, if that makes any sense. I think the pain thing is also like a coping mechanism. Mm. So if something bad has happened and you've survived it, obviously, when it happens again, I think your brain reverts back to thinking, well, how did this play out last time this happened? Mm. Like how did I deal with this last time and how can I do it again? Whereas I think with happy it's kind of like, Great, I'm enjoying this. This is awesome. <laughs> I don't done. need to. I don't need to reference this back necessarily. Or, but if it does happen um, unintentionally, like you were saying, um, that's great as well. Like that's. Uh, I'm building a bridge between that. Hap- you know, my previous memory and and what's happening now. Mm. I wish that those experiences were more frequent than the maybe more long-lived than the painful ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what different people hold on to. Mm. Um, you describe your work uh, as um, uh, documenting. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. What's, um, what makes you a documenter? Or it was specifically um, photographing to document as opposed to um, something else? Uh, I guess just that it's rooted in reality more than anything else. Um, so with my photography work, I'm sort of interested in documenting things around me. I guess at its very basic description, photography is documentation. Mm. And so by describing it as documentary making I'm just describing the reality of taking photos as they are it's not a digital manipulation or anything like that Hmm. so it's just a basic way to (laughs) to describe it uh, it's interesting you know when we um I I don't know what the term is I don't know if it's abstraction or uh but when back back in the day when artists were um progressing with their work, laying down artistic history. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, that we started to see that the brushstrokes were thicker and bigger and that the painting was taking on the quality of the paint. They yep. wanted it to be real yep. paint and um, real sculpture and, you know, and so it sounds that's what it makes me think of when you're, you're um, doing real quote-unquote photography. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a bit snoppy, doesn't it? It's like <laughs> all other photography is not real but this is real. <laughs> I think, I mean, I just use that term because it's, yeah, it's documentary photography, mm. taking photos of stuff that exists. It's not abstract photography or um, photographic practice that's manipulated or moving image, all those sorts of things. And what's the attraction? Um, in photography broadly. Mm. Um, that's a really good question. I've never um, considered it too much, but I guess sort of with this idea of like memories, it's like collecting sort of memories and ideas um, and putting them into place. So I've always been really into viewing photography. Um, like I sort of grew up in the age where every, most middle-class parents had like a slide projector mm. and their parents were like shooting Kodachrome slides and that happened in our family. We still have the slide projector that we have and we'd sit there and, um, you know, on a big white wall at in the evening or with the curtains closed, turning on the slide projector and watching this, um, you know, 36 shots of, a roll of film and most people will find that mind-numbingly mind boring <laughs> but I think it's amazing and I think um, from a young age like just it's almost like watching a movie like you just mm. see these really big blown up very bright vivid colours and a lot of the photographs that I saw through the slide projector were like you know landscape photos or photos of bushwalking in Tasmania um, and so from an early age, I was kind of like always interested in viewing and consuming photography in that way. And um, I guess that's always carried through for me in terms of my interest in, in the art form as well. Mm. Yes. And you've been, we were discussing the other day uh, that you were, the, the negatives that you've been working with have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, yeah. the type of film that you're using. Yeah. Can you talk about your progression? Yeah. Um, so I guess from talking about my sort of age and generation again, um, I find myself in a lucky position that um, I saw the end of the sort of wave of film photography that sort of happened that everyone said was dying off in the late sort of 1990s before the big sort of rush of digital photography came in. And so I was kind of there for the end of that. And like during my teenage years, I really enjoyed like taking a really simple like point and shoot camera or a disposable camera and going to a music festival or hanging out with my friends and taking photos. Uh, and they were, you know, pretty crap and like <laughs> probably laughable if I could find them now, but also like talks to the importance of like the process that I actually liked going through in making those photos and getting them back. 
Um, and then in the early 2000s, um, like I got a basic digital camera like everyone else. Uh, like I think the first one I had was like a three megapixel <laughs> like point and shoot. Like I think even the, iPhone, the very first iPhone camera was better than this. But at the time I was like, this is amazing. Like <laughs> it, I think it had like it could only hold 20 photos on the memory card. Wow. Um, so it was actually no different really to like a, a roll of film. Um, and so that was sort of my introduction to digital photography and then um, I did a lot of travelling and sort of got slightly better cameras but um, they're all quite uh, basic in their operation. And then when I came back from travelling, I was like, I really want to learn how to, you know, properly take a manual photograph. Like I want to have the complete power over mm. creating creating a photo. And so I took a... Um, a course, it was like a sort of a darkroom course, but it was also about the art of photography and the sense of like composition and um, manual operations of cameras. It was like mm. a very short course. And so that happened and as part of that we got to develop film and make a darkroom print and that really like, sort of parked my interest and um I started off then with 35 mil very small um very small oh, frame frames and sizes tiny in comparison yeah <laughs> and then um at the time I was living in Melbourne there was a very active group of um film photographers that um I sometimes spent some time with and also, they were part of a sort of active group online sharing work and I very quickly realised that I actually wanted to get into medium format, which is the next size up basically. And this was probably 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and at the time you could get a, you know, a medium format camera quite cheaply and film was a lot cheaper and accessible and there was this community around that was like, this is what they're doing. So I was like, wow, this is awesome and started to get into that. And I'd done that, you know, um, as I said, for about 12 or 13 years. But about two years ago I wanted to go even bigger, which is sort of large format. And um, it's a substantial jump up. It's not just like moving from 35mm to medium format. You need new equipment to develop you need a whole new camera you need lenses um you, i needed a new scanner um all the signs were pointing to it being a really stupid idea mm. basically <laughs> sounds like it. and a money pit effectively yes. um but i sort of determined and i you ignored the signs yeah i ignored the signs i think i got some tax back or something like i had a little injection of money and I, oh, just, I like that. I like that term, a little injection of money. <laughs> and so I decided to waste it all on a, <laughs> on a large format camera. And um, so, yeah, it's sort of slightly gotten bigger and bigger over time. And uh, one, of the, one of the other motivating reasons was I wanted uh, sort of a new challenge. And mm. um, it was a steep learning curve in terms of creating work with the camera and still is today. And... Um, I mean, it's funny, like the bigger the, the bigger the pictures, like the <laughs> the less, the more time it takes, you know. So yeah. 
you start off with like, you know, 36 roll, 35 mil, and then you get 10 shots on a six by seven medium format. And now you're literally like taking one shot at a time on this sheet film. And uh, so I really like the fact that it sort of slows you right down and you make a lot of um, deliberate choices in terms of what you're going to shoot, how you're going to shoot it. Um, and I think that that sort of speaks to what you were saying earlier about wanting total control. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think the other day we also discussed um, the concept of editing. Yes. And um, I feel like it's sort of like a balancing act, but with with this sort of large format stuff, you, you're really editing before you've even taken a photo. You're, and, you know, on the flip side of that, on the other scale is digital photography where you go out and you take a thousand photos and you come mm. back and you sit in front of your computer and edit them. And so that editing process for me starts really a long time before I've even sort of set up the set up the camera. I think what's what's interesting as well, um, I was speaking to someone recently um, and they were saying that they were photographing landscapes yeah. uh, while they were travelling and it was all happening very fast and um, actually I think it was Carl. Okay. Uh, and that he um, felt like the the documenting his traveling was taking him out of the moment of of being of being there and actually seeing it. Yeah, right. So he stopped photographing. Um, but what I feel like you're saying is that the whole process is putting you deeply in touch with that with that scene because you're considering everything for this one for this one moment that yeah, you're about to yeah. capture. Yeah. So you're looking at everything. Yeah, I'd say for me it's almost the opposite. Like the that is the moment. Like mm. what you're there to take a photograph of is the moment, and everything in the lead up to that is kind of important. But ultimately, like that's what you're there for. Yeah. Which is tricky. Which is it depends on how you work, I guess. Like it's very luxurious and privileged now to do something like a residency where you can spend all the time in the world, you know, within that two-week range <laughs> <laughs> of which I'm running out of time, um, building up to and defining that moment, whereas, like, I find it really hard to, like, go on a road trip and, like, see something amazing and pull over and take a photo because I'm like, ah, the light's not that good. <laughs> it would be better at 6 p.m., like I'm with my family, they don't want to stop for half an hour while I set this camera up. So I'm constantly like making mental notes, just like go back to this road mm -hmm. at 4 p.m. on a clear day or this will look amazing in cloudy conditions. Um, mm. So It's funny because it's like the opposite of, you know, when, you, when we track back to your interests, in photography and seeing the slides, what your um, parents were doing was was doing that that very in the moment, you know. Oh, we're going for a walk, click. Where you know, um, this is a beautiful sunset, click. Mm. You know, and it's and you're there and you're watching it and it's all happening. But now you've reached this point where you're 
so considered. Yeah. It's not um, candid. Yeah, to a certain to a certain extent, I guess. Like I don't I think a lot of my previous photographic work I would describe as very interested in candid moments. Mm. Um, I think like a lot of people who get into photography, particularly a lot of like white guys <laughs> in their 20s, um, like start off looking at street photography and like looking mm. at people like Eggleston and Cartier-Bresson, these sort of like godfathers of um that genre yeah. and that's kind of most people's sort of find their work and it sort of sparks this interest in um in the art form and that's all about you know the decisive moment and candid photography and so I think when I started taking it more seriously that's was my jump off point yeah. and so I used to like taking street photos and the documentation was around that but I think and I hope that, like, my work has evolved since then. Um, and now, like, I am much more interested in, like, developing narratives and um, making photographs that form part of a longer-term project or storyline. I think that that's definitely evident um, in, your, in your work. Um, I'm going to do it again and say that I cannot remember the name of the series because my brain is a sieve. <laughs> uh, but there's this, uh, a couple of really incredible shots of um, tires, uh, the one that looks like a snake moving through uh, the sand, but yeah. then also these, these green tires that look, that are sort of stacked in size, yeah. um, like a child's toy. Yeah, they, um, I think it's a Christmas tree. I think they're trying to build a Christmas tree. They were trying actually. to build a Christmas tree. Yeah. Oh. Um, that might have been part. So I've sort of had this ongoing series for a long time now called um, Tomorrow Will Be Postponed. Yes, yes. And um, it sort of some photos I was taking were fitting into this sort of narrative that I was interested in at the time, which was this sort of idea of humanity's struggles with the landscape and mm. nature. And in some ways, like nature kind of like fighting back <laughs> to humanity. And it initially started in a lot of like urban scenes that I was seeing um, in Melbourne and it was a city that at the time was like rapidly growing and changing and um, my initial interest was in sort of trying to capture that. And then one day I came back to Tasmania and went to a wedding and I saw this um, vacant piece of land on the east coast and someone had put a sign in the, um, in the grass and it said, due to a lack of interest, tomorrow has been postponed. <laughs> and I just thought it was a really like poignant phrase and um sort of spoke to these ideas that I was had just were quite still young in their infancy and um I took this photo and it sort of really um 
inspired the rest of the work. And um, I'd say that that series is still ongoing, but it's in my mind like a, a view of like the battle between like humans and nature and humans like sort of our nature, I guess, in some ways. But um, it has a very specific aesthetic that I look out for and that I um, am interested in. And some of those ones are like what I particularly like about those two photos that you mentioned is it's like humans have actually tried to reimagine an object of nature. Yeah. So they've recreated a tree using mm. tires. Um, they've made a Loch Ness monster <laughs> out of Loch Ness monster out of objects. And those two photos actually were taken. Um, in very quick succession on a trip across the Nullarbor that I did with a friend of mine a couple of years ago um, and actually showed some of those photos at a photo festival, but um, i still interested in that idea. I haven't taken a lot of – I haven't added to it, a lot of it recently, but um, it's well, something – Well, you've been taken on a different tangent coming yeah. back to Tasmania. Yeah, and I, I come back to that. Like it sometimes – I find a lot of what I photograph just in day-to-day -day stuff is loosely based around those themes. And so yeah. often after like six or 12 months, I'll go, go through my archive and sort of pick some things out that might fit into that. And so I look at it sort of retrospectively rather mm. than, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm engaging with it regularly. I, it's not something that I... I don't, you know, pack my bag and go out mm. looking for that sort yes. of those sort of scenes. But um, well, then I, it wouldn't be true, I guess. Well, I find sometimes if you try looking for something, it's can be really hard to find. <laughs> I, it's much easier to, sometimes just to go with the flow and photograph what's out there. But having said that, like you're saying, this. New work that I've been working on is a bit more deliberate and considered around specific spaces. So it is actually quite a different um, mythology that I'm using with what I've been photographing here in Queenstown rather than just wandering, mm. wandering around with the camera. Yeah, and, and, you know, the other day when we were talking, you were saying that this this project is something that is um much more personal than your previous projects mm. that you really because you're perhaps more introspective yeah with this um with this specific project it's um interesting you talking about revisiting your archive yeah um and that's a little bit what you're doing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you visiting your memory archive? Yeah. Uh, and actually, like, as part of my research for the project, I also revisited, like, my family's photo albums and took out um, certain photos and examined them and scanned them and um, used them as a basis for some of the work as well. So that particular way of working is quite new for me but mm. um going back and looking at photos that you've taken six months ago 12 months ago three years ago five years ago I think is um often important part of like making progress and 
mm. examining where where the ideas are taking you. Is it challenging for you um, revisiting these these memories or these photographs of your childhood? Um, no, not particularly challenging. I find it like reinvigorizing. Really? Like, yeah, yeah. Like because like a lot of it is about sort of family history. And I think I was saying to you the other day, like I don't really sit around at home with my parents talking about family history. Which is so foreign to me because that's what my family, my, my family is always talking oh, really? about the past. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I think like um, like I consider myself a storyteller of um, some capacity mm. in terms of like visual stories, but um, I really like you know, orally t- telling stories as well. And I think like m- my father is the same and that's maybe where that interest has come from. But at the same time, like, yeah, we're just not a family that sort of sits around and talks about family history like that. So it's almost taken like the act of doing this to sort of remind myself that this is something that I should, you know, do regularly or mm. see it through that particular lens. And uh, something that I really loved as well, I I don't know when you posted it, but I, I think it was your more recent post on Instagram um, and you were talking about uh, a lime uh, drink and yeah. uh, this strange combination of flavours when you were with your grandparents mm. and then vomiting yeah. in the car. Yeah. And... Um, so even though this project is is about you and your memory, mm. um, it's so incredibly relatable. Yeah, okay. Those experiences. I mean, for me, I was reading that and immediately thought of um, my childhood and uh, being in the car and vomiting in the car yeah. on the way to somewhere, you know, and you just so even though you're you yourself are going back, I feel like, you're taking us back with you. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've never really considered that in making the work. Um, I guess because I do view it so personally in terms mm. of like why, like the intention behind the work that I never really thought that anyone would. Well, I, I guess I have the concept isn't developed enough that I haven't thought about how it might be viewed by others. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not it's not complete or it's not, even though I've shown some pieces of it, it's not fully formed. So, um, yeah, it's interesting that I've never really thought what or how people could get from it because it is so personal. That's interesting. Mm. It's, it, feels, um, it feels really nice to um, look at the work and, and feel, you know, when you're talking about a narrative yeah. that's forming, that that narrative can feel so relatable. Yeah. Um, yeah, it feels very universal, even though it is so personal. Yeah. But then they say that, don't they, that, you know, um, the personal is universal. Just that, that, that the small moments yeah. are, are, are big moments. Yeah. And um, since I've been here, I've also, like, met up with a few people that I know um, and some people that I don't know but who know me, mm. which has oh, also been, like, <laughs> I know. I went to this uh, hotel the other day because um, 
we had a family event there that I remember going to. It's like an, um, I thought it was at one motel in the town, but I asked a relative who said, no, it was at a different motel. And so I contacted them and I said, oh, look, I'm, you know, doing this project. Um, my family had a function here. Can I come and take a photo? This lady wrote back and she's like, yeah, no problems. Come tomorrow. I'll be here at 11. And I got there and she was like, oh, I know who you are. I remember when you were a little boy. <laughs> wow. Um, and so that's been something that I didn't really expect as much. Um, but then again, when, when I actually think about it, like there's so many people here that have been here generationally as well. And, mm. you know, my family has a long history here and still comes back regularly and, um, there's a lot of people that have lived here also for generations. So it's a small place. People are bound to remember you. But it's funny mm. that me being there has like triggered a memory for them. And she said something about me playing in the park that I had no idea about as well. So, oh, my gosh. It's the dominoes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. One degree of separation. It is. It does. It does really feel that way, especially here. I don't know what it is about here, but I've had so many interactions um you know the episode with uh josh the both of us um knew um the same person who had been in alice springs with him right some somehow you know a, a dear dear friend of mine um mary we didn't know each other um and this was at different times uh, but we had the same hairdresser in Mullumbimby. Okay. <laughs> and we meet here. Yeah. Um, you know, a, another man uh, owns a property in Mullumbimby that um, my ex's friend lives in. All of these just tiny little connections, little things that just seem to be happening all the time here. Yeah. And it feels very, at first I thought, oh, th that's wild. That's incredible. And now I feel like there's, some strange witchcraft happening <laughs> um, and it's... <laughs> it's been dug up from the mountain and it's yeah. <laughs> exposed now for everyone to enjoy probably. Oh. Um, is there anything that you would like to say that you haven't said? Um, it's a very broad question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anything about, um, you know, your, your time here or your work or no I can't think of anything I've definitely like since talking to you have had all these questions I've raised internally about <laughs> the project I'm working on maybe don't talk to about it so much when it's so far from being fully formed but mm. um it is hard when you're in the process of making the thing yeah, to yeah. It, it seems like only after the thing is made that you can look back and say, oh, okay, now it makes sense. I see, yeah, yeah. I see what I did there. Yeah. Oh, clever. Yeah, that's interesting actually because that's a, um, I don't often think about those processes or um, I guess a lot of the work that I sort of do, I think about in retrospect after, after I make it, whereas this is a bit more deliberate. So I'm nervous about <laughs> <Don't be. laughs> nervous about um how it's gonna go and um well you um you took a big leap into large format yeah. photography and now you're taking a big leap <laughs> into a sort of 
vaguely planned project. <laughs> uh, so I think it's going to work out. I think it's going to be great. Hopefully. I think the tricky thing is always um, knowing when to stop. Oh, who knows? Who knows mm. when to stop? Oh. And I think sometimes that reveals itself to you, but sometimes it can go on for longer. Well, um, I, if it does go on for longer, then I imagine we'll see you back here. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll be back here anyway. But um, I was talking to someone this morning, I can't remember who it was, and I was saying, well, like it feels like I've got a lot to do, but at the end of the day, I can always come back. It's mm. not very far. And, mm. you know, it's great for me because there are some connections here with people and place. So it feels very comfortable for me to come here. It's not a very, it's not a foreign landscape or, um, do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm yeah, sort of familiar with it's the lay of the land and the, um, you know, the some of the people that live here. It's a really funny thing because after, you know, living here for a couple of years, this is the first time that I've ever had this thought, um, you know, and, and regularly going to QBank events and often going to have chats with artists that are there like yourself. And so QBank feels, I feel very comfortable yeah. there now. it feel, and, and all of Queenstown just feels comfortable. It feels like my home. And so then when um, artists come from out of town, yep. uh, I I don't know why, but I I feel like they feel the same way because I feel so at home. Oh, they, they should feel, feel at so at yeah. home. So to think that um, this place would seem foreign to anyone, I, I feel like I'm just having that thought for the first time. <laughs> yeah, okay. Not foreign like... Um... You know, turning up and people are speaking a different language is an example, but I just find the social structure quite, like, unique and also, uh, like, the landscape, obviously, is like nowhere else in Australia. So I just meant foreign, like, you you know, you might take, like, four or five days to really, mm. <laughs> like, settle into yeah whatever you're doing. But I think, I mean... Like I was saying to you, a lot of the QBank stuff is sort of painting, in, you know, people painting. So they go out and see the landscape and come back and mm. turn that into something. Your uh, stay is very minimal. It's very minimalist. <laughs> yeah. So I've spent a lot of time outside of the actual space mm. by virtue of what I'm doing. But, um, yeah, I, I, like I don't – people might might be confronted by the landscape, but I think ultimately – people that are going there know a little bit about it. And for most people, that's probably quite like it's an exciting prospect mm, that, it I, is, that it is yeah. quite, it's it's very unique, the town and everything about it. And so f- for a lot of people, that's inspirational. Absolutely. I, I try to remind myself, um, you know, my, my boy and I will be walking down the street to go and get some lunch and Mount Lyle is just there. Yeah. And I have to remind myself not 
to take it for granted. Yeah, okay. Just that, just to look at it and know that it's there and that it's so formidable and large. Yeah. And don't, don't forget. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I was saying to you before we went for a drive yesterday up to the top of the mountain and um, like you can just see it everywhere, like you can see the ocean, you can wow. see Frenchman's Cap, Cradle Mountain, and um, we were trying not to take the weather for granted because <laughs> it was like a clear day and we were like, man, it, like, as, much, as nice as it is to like have this view like it's not accessible all the time because mm. this, well, firstly, the road is quite precarious, but um, so is the weather. And like yeah. there would only be probably half the days of the year where you'd get a clear view from up yeah, there, even, even less. less yeah. yeah. So um, we were being thankful for the weather um, yesterday when we were there. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you in the world um, online? Online. Um, well, my website, which is my name, davecarswell.com, <laughs> or my um, Instagram handle, which I try to update regularly with goings on. It's Dave Carswell. With, with lots and lots of A's. With lots of A's. I've <laughs> never realised it, it's probably really hard to search for that. How many A's are there? I think there's three, but there could be four. Dang. Yeah, I'm not sure why I did that. I think just <laughs> like I was kind of a late. Um, Were you trying to be cool? Were you trying to be a millennial? No, I was just trying to find a handle that worked because oh, um, no. I was the latecomer to. Was there already a Dave Yeah, Carswell? there was. Oh. Already, and there was already like Dave Carswell 1, Dave Carswell. Oh, the audacity. Dave Carswell, I don't know, whatever else. It's probably a Dave Carswell 69, some like <laughs> 16-year-old. <laughs> I hope there is. I hope I'm going to look it up now. <laughs> <laughs> Undoubtedly there would be. It's my alt account. <laughs> um, so I don't actually know why I oh, why I did that, but. Um, You'll um, just chuck a few A's in. Yeah. In retrospect. It's probably unsearchable. Mm. Like if you typed it in, people would be like, oh, I don't know. Well, we'll help people. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay, yeah, I can find it. Send me a message. Thank you so much for no doing problem. this. Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. This was Local. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is produced by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by GG Gordes. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund and the Unconformity Festival. I think sometimes that reveals itself to you. But For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.